the uh, story is told of the night that Harvey and Gladys Goldman were getting ready for bed. Gladys stood in front of a full-length mirror, took a good hard look at herself, and she said, you know, Harvey, I stare into this mirror and I see an ancient creature. My face is all wrinkled. My breasts sag all the way to my waist. My arms and legs are as flabby as pop balloons. My backside looks like a sad, deflated version of the Hindenburg. She turned to face her husband and said, Honey, please tell me just one positive thing about my body so I can feel better about myself. Harvey, being born at night but not last night, stopped and gave her a good old look over. He looked carefully. He thought critically for a moment. And he said in a soft and thoughtful voice, Honey, there's nothing wrong with your eyesight. In a related story, (laughs) memorial services for Harvey Goldman will be held Tuesday morning at 10.30 at the Beth Israel Synagogue. So, just in case you want to know. I like, I like the other story. And then there was a time a group of seniors, they were sitting around and as tends to be the case, moaning about their various ailments. The first one said, my arms are gotten so weak I can barely lift a cup of coffee. The second one said, you know, I know what you mean. My cataracts are so bad I can barely see a cup of coffee. The third said, I couldn't even punch out the chat at election time because my hands were so crippled. The fourth one said, what? Speak up. What? What? I can't hear you. What'd you say? Another said, I can't turn my head because of the arthritis in my neck. And several nodded weakly in agreement. Another said, my blood pressure pills make me so dizzy I can hardly walk. Another still said, I forget where I am and where I'm going. An old man walking by said, I guess that's the price we pay for getting old. The others all nodded in agreement. And finally, one woman cheerfully said, Thank God we can all still drive. (laughs) Funny stories, yet a vivid reminder that these bodies of ours are slowly but surely deteriorating day by day. Each new wrinkle, each new gray or falling out hair, our diminishing eyesight, or in the case of those who are ill like myself, you know, rapidly falling apart, um, bodies are a subtle reminder that what God pronounces regarding all humanity is true, wherein he says the wages of sin or the consequences of sin is physical death as well as spiritual death. You know, as we've learned through this series of messages entitled Living in Light of Eternity, we're all going to die as a result of Adam's rebellion against God. Through Adam, we are all born with a congenital birth defect called sin, which ultimately brings about physical death. But the good news is that the Bible tells us, for God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son. The word gave indicates sacrifice, that he made a sacrifice, and his sacrifice was upon a cross where he shed his blood. For God so loved the world that he sacrificed his only begotten son, 
that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Those who repent of their sin and seek God's forgiveness, believing or accepting that Jesus died on the cross in their place and rose again from the dead on their behalf are forgiven. The Bible calls it being born again, um, adopted into God's family, and uh, promised the ultimate makeover, which is a new body raised to everlasting life. The new, this new and resurrected body was our focus last time we were together, and again, it will be today. So if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the definitive passage on the resurrection, where we'll once again learn more facts regarding this ultimate makeover. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's pick up the account at verse uh, 20, and we'll read through verse 34. <clears throat> But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God the Father, when he has established all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. Why don't we stop there? And as you can see from uh, your note page, if you want to look at it, that's in the bulletin. Uh, the last time that we met, we discovered and examined the first two of five truths that are going to be in this passage regarding the ultimate makeover or the resurrected body. Um, first, we learned of the prominence of the resurrection as it relates to the Christian faith and our salvation. In order to be forgiven by God and guaranteed that when one dies, one will go to heaven, you and I must hear the message. And the message of God is very simple. And here's his message to all mankind. It is God's will that men everywhere repent, that they turn from sin and they turn to God. And the message that we need to hear is not only that of repenting of our sins, but the message is very clear. And Jesus died for our sins according to Scripture. He was buried, and that he rose again three days later, according to the scriptures. That's God's message to all of mankind. That's the message of hope and of salvation. And it becomes a matter of, when one hears that message, what one does with it. There are many who hear the message, but don't believe. There are others who hear the message and respond in belief. That's why Romans 10 says, you know, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And the, and the difference between heaven and hell is 12 inches or so, which is the difference between a person's mind and a person's heart or their will. We can hear that message and just disagree with it, not accept it, reject it, and say, you know, there's, there's got to be more than one way to heaven and this whole Jesus thing, you know, isn't what I believe. And yet God as the ultimate authority says this is the way. This is the only way. 
Jesus reiterated that when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but through me. And so the prominence of the message is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried, and he was raised again from the dead. And whoever will believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The question at this point is, have you believed in him? Have you trusted in him? Have you heard the message and yet you reject the message and because it's a matter of the heart or the will or surrendering to God's way and that really becomes the issue. I know many folks who have heard the message. They can share that message with others but they have personally never received that message in their own lives. And what a tragedy that is to hear specifically what God requires and to say no. The Bible says it will be held accountable for how we respond to the message. And that's the issue of resurrection, that we'll be resurrected. Those who receive the message will be resurrected to eternal life. Those who reject the message will be resurrected to eternal damnation. But the choice is ours. And God is gracious to say, this is what I require. What is it that you will do? And so Paul, once he's laid this foundation, he moves on to provide the proofs. You say, well, why should I believe that? Well, Paul goes on to provide the proofs of the resurrection in verses 5 through 19, which are basically eyewitnesses. And mostly focusing on the eyewitness accounts of those who saw Jesus after he died and was buried and was raised, who talked with him, ate with him, touched him, spent quality and quantity time with him, and this all was after he died, was buried, and resurrected. How many people saw him? Well, according to the passage that we read last time, there were at least 515 at a minimum, and many more depending on what it means in verse 8, that all the apostles, you know, saw him. That may refer to disciples, which literally uh, were in the hundreds. And he spent 40 days with them, talking about the kingdom of God. And so that's enough time to rule out whether you were seeing things or not. And uh, they became convinced in the time that they spent together that he indeed had raised from the dead. You know, the reason Paul goes into such a lengthy discussion regarding the resurrection is not only um, is that the, the second of the two great pillars of the Christian faith is that, you know, that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose again from the dead. Those two pillars hold up everything that as Christians we say we believe. Jesus died and Jesus rose. And everything we believe hinges on those two truths according to what God had already said would happen in his word. Now there were also those in Corinth who didn't believe in the resurrection. And they were going around trying to convince people that that was an impossibility. That there's no way that anybody could come back from the dead. And so they were refuting this doctrine and Paul comes to them and refutes this nonsense, but he does so by using history and logic and theology and his own personal experience. So in verse 20, we pick up his argument where we see the parade of the resurrection. Notice in verse 20, immediately we find the word but. And the word but is a contrast and it contrasts the previous thought to the thoughts that's going to be introduced. 
the previous thought was, well, you know what? If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then everything that we believe is nonsense. And it is. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, then everything we believe is nonsense. It's, it's a hoax. It's a farce. He said that if he's, he's going around telling people that Jesus is alive and he wasn't alive, then what he was doing was wrong before God, but indicates a strong contrast. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. You say that he hasn't, and I'm telling you, he has. And here's the evidence and why I believe it. Not only did I see him, not only did 515 other people see him, not only did he walk the face of the earth for 40 days and we interacted on a regular basis. Hey, the bottom line is, is that he also goes back to scripture and notice what he says in verse 20, that he is the first fruits of those who are asleep or who have died. Now, that means nothing to most of us, the words first fruits. But to a Jewish listener, it meant a lot. And turn with me to Leviticus in the Old Testament, if nothing else, just for the fun of finding it. Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus chapter 23. And I want you to see what's quoted in our passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Leviticus 23, verse 9. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, When you enter the land which I'm going to give to you, and reap its harvest, you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted on the day after the Sabbath, and the priest shall wave it. Now on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, one year old, without defect, for a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an epeth of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma with its libation, a fourth of a hen of wine. Until this same day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall eat neither bread nor roasted grain nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. One of the things that stands out in my mind as I went through this is that, you know, God, when he does things, he does things with a purpose and a reason. And he's very specific. Notice he gave very specific instructions. And if they were to be pleasing before God, they were to do exactly as God said. What he said in this case was, when you go out to harvest, bring in the, the sheath of your harvest, and this will be an offering to God. And what he was saying was, is that, and it was a guarantee that the rest of the harvest that was behind would also be offerings to God. So he goes back, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, He's saying that Jesus has been raised from the dead and is the first fruits of all those who have died. And just like in the Old Testament, where you would bring in the first of your offering or the first of your harvest, just like that was brought before God, everything that was to follow 
was to be brought before God. And as surely as the first sheath was brought in, all the rest of the harvest would be brought in. Now understand the significance of this. As surely as Jesus was raised from the dead, it guarantees that you and I, who have trusted in him, believing upon his death and his resurrection on our behalf, as surely as Jesus was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. And that's as surely as when you go back to the harvest of the Old Testament, when it was brought in, it was guaranteed the rest was coming too. And those who would understand that had thousands of years of history to say, okay, you know what? Yeah, when the first of the harvest came in, the rest of the harvest came in. Jesus raised from the dead, the rest of us who have died in Christ will be raised from the dead. Ah, it's simple. It makes sense. And he goes through it. In Colossians 1.8, we read the same words that are used of Jesus, that he's the first fruit of all who will be raised. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. He's first, and all of us who trust in him will come after him. That's a promise that he made. Now notice this, and he goes back and he does a contrast or a comparison. For as in Adam, all men die. We've already come to that conclusion, Genesis 3, 6. Adam sinned before God. Because Adam sinned, all of us are going to die because of that congenital birth defect. Notice what he says. For just like all will die in Adam, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. So Adam brought death, Jesus brings life and resurrection. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Now notice this, he gives a sequence of events that will take place, and some of this sequence I'm using as kind of an outline for where we're going to head in this particular series, but notice what he said. Then comes the end, when he delivers up the kingdom of the, of, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. So what we're saying is this. There's a day that's coming when the dead in Christ, we saw that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will be raised or resurrected first. Then, if we're alive, we'll be caught up with them in the air. We'll be changed in a twinkling of an eye. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll see that at the end of this chapter. And we'll be resurrected at that time. During that period of time, there'll be a great tribulation that'll take place on this planet Earth. I believe that during those seven years, that we as believers will stand before the great, or the, the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ in order to be rewarded for our service subsequent to coming to faith in Christ. And that'll be the focus of the message next week. At the end of the seven years, the Bible tells us, Old Testament saints will be resurrected. And we will all reign with Christ for a period of time that we call the millennium or a thousand year reign of Christ. At the end of that period of time, <clears throat> Satan will be loosed. 
There'll be one last rebellion. And it's at that point that all things will be put in subjection to Christ. And those who died and rejected the gift of salvation that God offers will be resurrected for judgment purposes. They'll be tossed in the lake of fire for all of eternity. And we see the culmination of all of that in these particular verses here where we see a sequence of order that takes place. And we'll get more into that as we go through the series. But that basically is the outline that we'll be, we'll be looking at. Now let's look at the, um, the pattern of the resurrection that's found in verse 29 and as we go through this passage. <clears throat> he says, you know, if this isn't true, if the resurrection isn't true, then what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? And why are we also in danger every hour? He's saying, you know, why go out and share the gospel? Why go out and make disciples? Why go out and baptize believers to replace basically or reproduce those who have died and, you know, continue the process? He's saying, why do that? Why suffer if none of this is true? He says in verse 31, I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? He said, you know, and he goes on and says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry, basically, or eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And so his argument is very simple. He's saying, tell me why I go through all the stuff I go through. Tell me why I've been shipwrecked, why I've been persecuted, why I've been stoned as many times as I have, why I've been left for dead, why I subject myself to this type of environment, to the beast, the wild beast of Ephesus, including human beings who basically hate those who follow Christ. These are, explain to me why I put up with all of this if I didn't see Jesus resurrected. He goes, what's my motive? I mean, what's in it for me? And Paul was very clear. It's like, you know what? He worked with his hands, so he never took advantage of people financially. He wasn't a hustler. He wasn't a charlatan. He wasn't somebody who was using the gospel to get rich off of and, you know, and drive a big old car and, you know, have nice big rings and jewelry. He's like, you know, look at my life. What's my motivation? Because if Jesus hasn't been raised and I haven't seen him, then why am I doing what I'm doing? Explain that to me. Try to explain it to me. And it's a huge argument. And he's saying because if there is no God and there is no accountability and if Jesus isn't alive, then you know what? Like Meander the philosopher said, I might as well eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die and that's it. What's our motivation? See, our motivation is that there is a God. Our motivation is that he is alive. Our motivation is, is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Our motivation is that he has died on the cross. He was buried. He was raised again. Our motivation is, is that when you and I, who have turned from sin and trusted in Christ and believed in his death on our behalf and the power of his resurrection, our motivation is, is that we are not the same people that we used to be. Old things pass away, all things become new. 
Our motivation in sharing with other people is that we want them to experience the same type of peace and joy and fulfillment that we've come to know by putting our faith and trust in Christ. Our motivation is is that we want to keep people from going to hell. Our motivation is, is that God has commanded us who have trusted in Christ to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Our motivation is that we want to be pleasing to the one who has saved us from hell and said, all I require of you now is to go out and tell people about me. Proclaim him who has called us from darkness into light. The least we can do is say thank you to the one who has saved us from hell. To the one who has given us eternal life. To the one who gives us peace and joy and fulfillment and contentment. The least we can do is to go out into the world and say, hey, you know what? Let me tell you about Jesus. Because there is nobody else who can save you from hell. And you think you're living in hell now. You don't know what hell is until you read God's word and it reveals what hell really is. I talk to people all the time and say, man, my life is hell. No, it's not. It's not even close. And as bad as it is, it's as close as you'll come to heaven if you don't trust in Christ. My marriage is hell. My business is hell. My finances are hell. My kids are, you know, it's like, you know, my life is, no, it's not. Jesus can free you from the bondage of sin. Jesus can give you the peace that you're looking for. You're not going to find it anywhere else. You're not going to find it in more money. You're not going to find it in another degree. You're not going to find it in a new spouse. You're not going to find it in another relationship. You're not going to find it in, you know, sexual encounters. You're not going to find it in drugs or alcohol because none of them deliver what they promise. And at the end of the day, you're even more miserable than when you started the quest. But I'll tell you what, you can find peace in Jesus. We have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peace on earth to, whom, to men in whom God is well pleased. In what men is God well pleased? Those who believe what he says about Jesus. What is the work that God requires of humanity? That you believe upon him, Jesus, whom God has sent. See, there is no other hope outside of Christ. And the least we can do is tell others about Jesus. See, he goes on and he says this, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You know, don't miss this. Because living in light of eternity has serious implications for this lifetime. We will choose friends who will reinforce that there is a God to whom we must give an account for our actions in life. We are to choose friends who will encourage us to think properly, doctrinally sound. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again. We need to have friends who reinforce the truth of God's word. We need to have friends who will call us on our sin if we choose to do wrong before God, they will do so in a loving way, yet firmly and without compromise. And the Bible says clearly, don't be deceived. 
If there's one thing that, you know, we, we, we struggled when our kids were growing up, it was trying to help them to see that, you know what, you are who your friends are. And when they'd say things like, oh, we're not, no, I'm not really like them. Listen, you know what, you're just like them or you wouldn't get along. And the bottom line is don't deceive yourself. We are who we call our friends. Take a good hard look at your friends. I think some of us are in, in need of a friendectomy. <laughs> See, I'm learning all these medical terms. <laughs> but we are. Because you've got to ask yourself the question, are my friends leading me closer in my walk with the Lord or are my friends moving me further away from what God requires of my life? Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And what Paul was saying in the context was this to the Corinthians. Hey, listen, don't be hanging out with people who deny the resurrection. What do you have in common with them? Don't be hanging out with people who encourage sexual immorality. I mean, you read the book of 1 Corinthians and and you realize, man, these people had a whole bunch of problems living a life that was pleasing to God. He's saying, so don't believe people that say, hey, you can have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, you know, as long as you're responsible adults or whatever their line was back then. It's like, no, don't hang around people who encourage you to do those things that are wrong before God. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You're going to end up just like them. We need to live lives that are pleasing to God. Notice in verse 35. But someone will say, well, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of bodies do they come? You know, it was as if some of them were saying, how's God going to do that? That seems really hard. (laughs) Raising people from the dead? That seems tough. And it's like Paul's going, duh. You know, think about it for a second. How do we get here to begin with? And then God took dirt and formed it into a living being and he breathed life into it. We need to get back to the basics, the fundamentals. How do you think we got here to begin with? God took dirt, formed it into a living being, breathed life into it, and da-da, here we are. And so these people are all hung up on, this seems a little hard to me that God could raise somebody from the dead and it's like hey why do you think Jesus rose Jairus's daughter from the dead why do you think he rose the widow of Nain's son from the dead why do you think he said Lazarus come on out and it's a good thing he specified Lazarus or everybody that was dead would have came out why do you think the Bible said that on, during the crucifixion that the graves were opened up and literally hundreds of those who had died started walking through the streets of Jerusalem? Why do you think the Bible said, and this is the last thing I'm going to do, the greatest sign of all, and I'm not giving you any more signs, and I'm going to raise Jesus from the dead? So that we would believe he can raise the dead. Duh. That's not that hard. But they're like, well, how could he do that? I mean, what about people who are blown up? (laughs) That's a hard one. 
Or what about people who are cremated? Ooh. And their ashes are thrown all over the place. I bet you God's going. Or whatever. It's like, this isn't tough. And notice why he says in verse 36, you fool. It's like, duh, what is wrong with you people? That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He said, look around. Look at everything that God has created. He says, that which you sow, you don't sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps a weed or something like that. But God gives it a body just as he wished and to each the seeds of a body of its own. And all flesh isn't the same flesh. There's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. There's heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one is the, and, and the glory of the earthly one is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. And he's like, just look around. At everything that God does. It's all different. And so he's saying that, you know, in order for a seed to continue on into life, you plant it, the seed dies, and there's a continuum there. And they come, you know, and it ends up being, you know, a tree or a flower or something like it. And it's like, hey, in order for this new thing to come forth, the old thing must die. And that's what he's saying is true of the resurrection. In order for us to enjoy the new resurrected body that God will one day give us, these old ones that we have have to die like a seed. They're just going to have to go. And he goes on and he begins to explain it for us. He says in, in verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Now notice this. It's sown a perishable body, but it's raised imperishable. Like a seed that's sown in the ground There is continuity between an acorn and the tree, the kernel and the stalk. In heaven, no one will comment on our age. No one will make any cracks about, you know, our wrinkles or our gray hair. It'll never take its toll on us. We will be, as he says, imperishable. Today, we can watch ourselves deteriorate, some more rapidly than others. But at the same time, he's saying, but that's not going to be the case in heaven. No one will make any cracks about anything because we'll have an imperishable body. He says it will be sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. There's no hiding our resurrected bodies. No hiding them under the corn or sheet. You ever notice the shame associated with death? I've been at the hospital when people have passed passed from this life to the next. And it's if the doctors and nurses, they can't get in there fast enough to hurry up and put the sheet over the body. Because there's dishonor there. There's a certain sense of shame that goes along with it. But that won't be the case with our new bodies. We'll be resurrected in glory. Raised in glory. No more shame and no more embarrassment over our bodies. I think of people who struggle all their lives. You know, ashamed of what they look like. And it saddens me because that's not who we are. And it's only temporary. People who rush to have all that work done physically, and yet within their own hearts, they're still miserable. And it doesn't change anything. See, God says that, you know what, we'll be sown in dishonor, but we'll be brought forth in glory. He says we're sown in weakness, 
but we're raised in power. And I can't, you know, I'm going to tell you, man, I got real excited about that. Real excited. Because I thought, man, you know, I've run three marathons in my lifetime. And, you know, and a few of them really good times. You know, there were times where I could bench press 300 pounds, 10 or 15 reps. You know, now I, I get winded going up to my bedroom. And it's like, wow, this isn't right. Pick up a toothbrush and it's like, whoa, look, I'm doing 10 reps. <laughs> you know, I can live without the hair, but it's these six-inch biceps I'm having a problem with right now, man. It's like my pipes are like gone, man. My grandson's got bigger guns on him than me. And I just kind of, I read this and go, yeah, praise God for that resurrected body because I'm looking forward to the new one. And I'm going to do the best I can with the one I have until, you know, it doesn't work anymore. But at the same time, I read this and go, man, sown in weakness and raised in power. That's awesome. And I don't care what you think of the condition you're in right now. It's still going to be puny compared to what we're going to be raised in. He's sown a natural body and it's raised a spiritual body. And these are adjectives that describe the focus of the passage, which is the noun body. You know, Jesus' resurrected body is a pattern that we can look for what we will be like when we're raised from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious one. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Beloved, we are God's children now, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, verse 2. And we see in verse 49 in this passage, and just as we have been born the likeness of the earthly man, so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. What was true of the resurrected Jesus? He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. And what I'm trying to help us do through this series is get away from our cartoon theology. And that is this. I mean, how many of you remember watching cartoons when you were a kid? Somebody gets killed and there immediately there's a spirit floating on a cloud playing a harp. It's like, you know what? We're not going to be spirits. We're not going to be disembodied spirits. We're going to be people who have spirits as we do now, but we're going to be in a resurrected body that God has prepared just for us. Jesus wasn't a spirit. He was a phys- his was a physical triumph over physical death in a physical world. Jesus walked on the earth for 40 days, and he showed his disciples how to live as resurrected human beings. And where we would live as those resurrected human beings was right here on this earth. God will create a new heaven and a new earth. And the focal point will be in New Jerusalem. And we're getting to that. But at the end of the day, we're going we're to inhabit and live in an environment that's suited to these new bodies that he will give us. When you do a quick survey of Jesus' life after the resurrection, we know he walked on the road to Emmaus. He didn't hoover off the, hover off the ground. He wasn't a spirit. We know that he was physical. He spoke with his disciples. There was one point where he must have caught some fish because he had prepared some fish for them to eat when they were out on the lake and said, come on in, let's have breakfast together. So not only did he catch fish, he cooked them and they all ate together. They touched him, they felt him. His body looked the same as it did before, except that now it had the scars that we will always see as a reminder 
of how his death provided access to heaven for us, for those who believe. He stood on the shore and he called out to them. Mary looked at him and thought that he was a gardener in the, in the garden because she didn't immediately recognize him, but she saw that he was a human being. He got close enough to them that he breathed upon them. And everything sounds like something we can relate to, yet at the same time, he was able to appear behind locked doors at his will, and he was able to also disappear. And what's exciting is when we think about the new heavens and the new earth and all that comes along with it, we're going to need new bodies because these bodies could never survive in this new environment that God is going to create. The new Jerusalem is 1,500 miles high. I mean, think about that. That's 8 million that's 8 million feet. We'd have a little tough time breathing if you had one of those, you know, maybe get like a penthouse, you know, up on top of the New Jerusalem and the place he's preparing for you is going to be, you know, penthouse suite. And you'd be like up 8 million feet. <laughs> well, that's not going to work. But he's going to make it work. You know, and by observing the resurrected Christ, we also observe, you know, not only what his body was like, but what his relationships were like. He picked up right where he left off. His conversations with Mary Magdalene and with Thomas and with Peter, they picked up right where they left off. He came back and Peter, you know, had denied him and he immediately confronted him. Do you love me? And, and brought about reconciliation and redemption. And so we learn a lot about not only a resurrected body, but our resurrected relationships. That you and I will pick up where we left off. And what a wonderful thought that is. That we'll resume that through all of eternity. And so we'll get to a lot of that as, as we come to those passages. But notice one last thing before we look at, um, at, at this last point in verse 50, and that's this. See, when Paul says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, he's referring to this flesh and blood that's corrupted by sin and under the curse. Our present bodies are fallen, they're destructible, but our future bodies, though they're still bodies in the fullest sense, will be untouched by sin and they'll be indestructible. They'll be like Christ's resurrected body, both physical and indestructible, which is exciting because these present bodies are not equipped to see God. The Bible says that no man can see God and live, and yet we know that when we see him, we will see him just as he is. How is that possible? Because he is going to change these bodies so that we can see him for who he is. Lastly, and we'll close on this, Paul closes the, his argument with the power of the resurrection. And he says that, you know, behold, I tell you a mystery. And a mystery was just something that hadn't previously been revealed in the Old Testament. This was something new. It was new teaching. And he said, here's the new teaching that I want you to know. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And his teaching was, not everybody's going to die. Those who are alive when Christ comes for his church will we'll be you know, transformed, will be changed. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on that which is imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then we will come. And then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, 
and the power of sin is the law. But notice this, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in closing, he summarizes it all and you say, well, what does this have to do with me here right now? What, is it, what does this have to do with how to live this life in light of eternity? And this is what he says, therefore, because of everything that I just told you about one day resurrected bodies, Therefore, because Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead and those who trust in him will also be raised from the dead, therefore, it should affect the way we live today. And here's what he says. Be steadfast. It's a command. Immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What's the command? To be steadfast in our service to the Lord. Let every, everyone that has breath praise the Lord to be unmovable in our suffering for his name's sake. For I don't compare the sufferings of this lifetime worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in me. Be abounding in our ministry to others. To continue to share the gospel with those who frankly at times don't want to hear it to continue to share it with those who reject it, to continue to share it with those who God brings into our life. It's the least we can do. If we say we love other people, how can we let them go to hell when we have the knowledge of what God says they need to do in order to gain eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord? Why should we do this? Because we know from God's word that our toil in the Lord is never in vain. Solomon said that life was all vanity, chasing soap bubbles. But Paul said, no, it's not. Not if you're doing what God's called you to do. Not if you're using the gifts that God has given you for his glory and for his purposes. We know or we'll learn in in our next message that, you know, God rewards those who are faithful in such service the judgment or the beam of seat of Christ. All doctrine teaches that we should have a corresponding duty to those around us. What we say we believe should affect our behavior. Many of us look forward to heaven more now than we did when we were young and maybe in better shape. Never really gave it much thought. I was talking to Dave as we were walking around the campus today and said, you know, I never gave it much thought. When I was running marathons and was in good shape and had good health, it's like never thought much about the resurrected body, thinking a lot about it now. Johnny Erickson taught a a woman who, when she was a teenager, dove into a lake and broke her neck and has spent the last 50 years of her life a quadriplegic. She says this, somewhere in my broken, paralyzed body is the seed of what I shall become. The paralysis makes what I am to become all the more grand when you contrast atrophied, useless legs against splendorous, resurrected legs. I'm convinced that if there are mirrors in heaven, the image that I'll see will be unmistakably Johnny, although a much better, brighter Johnny. I like that. Inside your body and mine, even if it's failing as the blueprint for your resurrection, 
you may be maybe not be satisfied with your current body or your mind but you'll be thrilled with what I call resurrection upgrades <laughs> with them you'll be better able to serve and glorify God and enjoy an eternity of wonders that he has prepared for you this of course is if you have trusted and received Christ as your savior because the Bible says that you will be resurrected to eternal life and enjoy the place that God is preparing for us in heaven for those who reject Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins you too will be raised from the dead but your body will be raised for a new environment called hell or the lake of fire where you will suffer eternally and that body will never deteriorate but you will suffer for eternity outside of the presence of God but it's your choice where do you want to go it's up to you let's pray our heavenly father we thank you for the clarity of your word and I realize even as I stand here that there are those who hear these words and and they fight them they fight them with their will they fight them with their spirit God I pray that you'd soften such a heart to recognize that you're the ultimate authority and what you say goes. God, help us to understand there's only one way to heaven and that's through Jesus Christ. His death on the cross, the power of his resurrection, and the Bible says for those who believe upon him, they will not perish but have everlasting life. God, I thank you that because of what Jesus has done in my faith and trust in him, I can look forward to the day I'll be absent from this body and present with the Lord and also look forward to the day where you will give me a resurrected body, a body that is sown perishable but raised imperishable, a body that is sown in weakness but raised in power. God, we thank you that you are preparing a place for us even now that where you are, we will always be. Father, I pray for those who are listening to these words that if they're not sure of where they'll go the moment they die, that they pray a simple prayer, God, forgive me, for I'm a sinner. And though I don't totally understand, I believe the best I can that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that he rose again from the dead and that he's alive today, extending forgiveness to me as I ask. God, I thank you for hearing me. I thank you for changing me. And I look forward to what you'll do in my life. In Jesus' name, amen.